0: You're listening to Deal Talk with Seven Ma, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries, and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market.
1: So we are back with another episode of Deal Talk with Seven Ma. Today on the podcast, we're talking about AI, machine learning, and the patents that are often involved in those technologies. A lot of you may be wondering, can a patent actually impact my company's valuation? We have two experts on the space, John Cooper and Josh Tucker, that will be discussing just that. John, why don't you kick things off by telling us a little bit about your background and what you do here at 7 Mile.
2: Thanks, Ariel. As she said, my name is John Cooper. I'm a director here at 7 Mile. I've been with the firm for about five years now. And and over my time here, um, I've worked on uh, a number of transactions, many of them including uh, things like automation and AI and machine learning. And that's definitely starting to become a a bigger piece of uh, the M&A space and and gain a lot of traction, specifically as it starts to become much more adopted from an enterprise perspective. Um, and and become a little bit more advanced along the way. So we look forward to having a little bit further discussion today around the topic um, with uh, Josh Tucker here at Pillsbury. And I'll turn over to Josh for a quick overview on his side.
3: Yeah, thanks, John. So this is Josh Tucker with Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pitman. I'm here in the Austin my partner in the intellectual property group here. And my practice it really specializes on software, and in particular, in AI slash machine learning and data science invention. Um, so I probably spend about lord about seventy percent of every day uh, helping people figure out what they can patent in that space, helping them get patents on that, and helping them deal with other people's patents that are being sort of used to threaten them or. Are creating some barriers, um, and, and that includes helping with um, IP diligence and M and A transactions, and then advising on uh, kind of IP adjacent issues as well. And um, a fair amount of open source work gets woven into that, just because it's uh, it's so common for some of the more powerful tools to be open sourced and burdened by open source licenses. So um, I, I would say well, I've been doing this for 15 years, but. It's really been AI focused for about the last say nine. Um, I got started doing um, uh, pulled onto the Google docket kind of early in my career and got a, a nice um, uh, education by some of the technical staff there on some of uh, some of these algorithms that ended up being sort of transformational in the in the broader industry and have been part of this kind of wave of AI that we're seeing now. So, um, yeah, so I'm happy to happy to kind of answer any questions about. Um, uh, about what I'm seeing in the field
2: or um, what would be helpful for us to talk about today John hey, yeah no that's that's a great overview and that's you know a good good perspective I think on the the IP diligence side of the house because that that's an important factor too when so it's not only hey we're going to market this this asset that has a lot of interesting machine learning but but there's also a Piece of the transaction process that a lot, I think a lot of folks need to consider as well beyond going out and, and presenting, um, you know, either an algorithm that generates a lot of you know machine learning or, or AI capabilities, but also you know making sure that from a buyer's perspective, it, it's going to get heav- heavily diligence and a lot of that stuff too comes in on kind of the patent side of it and checking through um, the legality. Side, which I think is becoming a little bit more of an interesting topic is, is this space starts to mature a little bit more. So certainly, we'll be excited to to learn a little bit about your take on that, Josh, and what you've seen. But maybe just to set the table, let's kind of just for for table stakes, start off with you know the the you know how we think about the space of, of machine learning and AI and kind of what that buzzword means. In your frame of mind, I think that would be helpful.
3: Yeah, no, buzzwords, the right words. <laughs> it's, a, it's a field rife with buzzwords that get bandied about. Uh, sometimes it's a dry evaluation. And the terms machine learning and AI, to my mind, there's sort of a continuum between what we, people would think of as just sort of high school level statistics. And some of these newer, um, very large, very sort of large models that, have truly emergent properties um, like uh, large deep neural networks and things like that. Um, So like when you're out there evaluating companies and they say they, Hey, they have AI or machine learning. My, like my experience is that doesn't tell me a lot about like how advanced the techniques they're using um, just because like they are buzzwords that people will try and hang onto their product to drive valuation. I I would say among the um, like among those in the field that are technically skilled, I, I do think there's a little bit of a difference in sense between machine learning and AI. And I, I kind of think of machine learning as something of a species of AI. And then there's there are other categories that are a little bit less in fashion than machine learning, like some, uh, some uh, symbolic approaches from like the dating back to the 70s and 80s that haven't had quite the resurgence. Um, and it, it is a broader field. But um, I, I think machine learning accounts for where a lot of the heat is right now in terms of, what's driving inventions and um, uh, transactions that I'm seeing. Yeah,
2: that's. I'd say we we see a similar thing. I'd say what is still, I think, unique about the space is we still see the need for a lot of human intervention, whether it's QA and, and refining or, you know, other aspects of you know, a, a human driving the algorithm or, or perfecting or refining in, in ways that perhaps can't be done artificially yet and, and still trying to perfect that model. I think there's still a fair bit of that, um, at least from what, what we've seen across some of the boards.
3: Yeah, the, there's kind of a, a little bit of a scandal recently in the field where folks have been marketing their company as if it's machine learning driven or AI driven. And then folks get under the hood, and it's sort of like a Theranos situation where actually they have got a um, a back office in India that's actually doing doing the work exactly. of the model. <laughs> yeah. and, and like part of the diligence is just figuring out, like, what are you dealing with here? Like, is this like human intelligence or artificial intelligence really? Because you can't just look at the black box as inputs and outputs.
2: Yeah, and that that's the big kind of diligence factor of it, which can ultimately, yeah, you can you can market a deal as fantastically as you can and, and highlight all these buzzwords and then once somebody digs in diligence, it falls apart and that's you know i think one of the true kind of ways you can see through that is is the financials i mean at the end of the day it all kind of boils back to there is like all right do you have software type uh gross margins, you know 80 percent plus or are you doing like 50-55, which implies you're still paying a lot of people to deliver an engagement to a client. And, and I think that's a, a very clear tell, um, at least from the financial perspective, aside from looking at what might be on the you know, technical side or other facets of it, and, and a quick check the box of, hey, do we have this? <laughs> yes or no
3: sort of the unit economics of the of the company
2: yeah yeah exactly
3: yeah there was there's actually a really interesting deal that hit um, I think just this month scale AI pulled in a uh, hundred hundred million just to just to label data right so there's there's a lot of like interesting consulting and and non AI work that's being driven by to, by the effort to sort of feed these models and teach these models and I think there's a lot of room for value to be created around that it's just you don't get those those um, ratios that you'd like to see in a pure like SaaS play um, yeah with
2: a lot of those companies we expect yeah well that's great so let's run down so there's a, a usual questions i think we hear from mm-hmm. uh either clients or prospects when when we're going down the path of talking through machine learning and then you know trying to help them get some perspective on the market i think one one of the biggest things is just around the patents of all right, we have this algorithm. You know, should we patent it? Is it worth our time? Maybe if you could spend a, a, a few minutes talking down that path of just understanding the patent world now as it is today in, in machine learning and uh, AI, and you know what's changed over the recent recent years, and you know how how should we think about that?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can patent. Look, you can patent software. It's it's fair game. Uh, and that's surprising to a lot of folks because they think, oh, software is just math. And in a sense, it is, right? But, and there's sort of a, there's a little bit of an uneasy tension between these ideas of it just being math and it being some sort of specific machine that you should be able to, to patent. Like ultimately, any piece of software, you could hardwire it into a chip. And it wouldn't stretch folks' intuition that much to get a patent on a, on a circuit design on a chip. But if you express that same logic as bits written to a rewritable memory and software, um, uh, some folks are a little bit more less comfortable with that. Um, and so what what we're seeing right now is that courts are trying to sort of make sense of that tension, and software patents do undergo extra scrutiny. Scrutiny. Like there's there's certain requirements that they're being held to, and frankly, some somewhat more arbitrary case law uh, or arbitrary rules that are being applied um, uh, under some relatively new and vaguely worded case law that's making software patents um, a lot less predictable in terms of how they're going to be handled at the patent office and in the courts. Um, but you that's not to say you can't get them and they're not being successfully enforced. There's just, it's higher risk. Um, but at the same time, uh, I would say it's higher reward as well because you're talking about something with a zero marginal cost to produce. Um, once you figure out that algorithm or even just demonstrate that there's an opportunity in a particular space, the path to replicating that is often relatively short for your competitors. So if you don't have patents, um, often there's, there's hard questions going to be asked about barriers to entry for your competitors. Um, So, what do you do with that uncertainty? The the pattern, um, and what we're recommending, what we're seeing, successful folks do is they're uh, they're doing what anybody would do in the face of of uncertainty and risk. They're diversifying. So, you might have a um, you might have a machine learning model with sort of five unique facets about it, or five different ways of characterizing what it does as useful and and not innovative. And maybe five years ago or ten years ago, for some of this case law, we'd file a single patent. Well, now we're getting at five we're hitting at five different times with five different claim sets and potentially landing in front of five different examiners and diversifying our examiner risk. And then when on the assertion side, you're also sort of diversifying your risk for landing in front of the wrong judge or just having the case law move against you. So it's still possible to do. It's becoming a more specialized practice. It's certainly a very interesting area from uh, on the case law side as well.
2: Yeah, that's in, uh, so that isn't so when you talk about kind of the time frame of and the effort that this takes so you know, what what is so when when a you know company they think they've developed you know something that's a unique use case how do they go about that process so, so like what's the time to do that and you know one of the things that's, I think interesting and unique about this market is it, it moves so fast that can they do it in a rapid enough time to you know, protect whatever they may have may have found that's useful?
3: Yeah, know that's a great point. So, in terms of timing, um, earlier is better. You don't have to implement the file, but you have to file for your application before uh, before for most of the world before you disclose it publicly or sell it. Um, and in the U.S., within a year when you disclose or um, or sell it. So. Um, earlier is better and the gold standard is filing your application before you talk about it outside the company Um, in terms of the technology evolving that's a it's a really interesting issue because it's just it's it's amazing how fast it's moving and it's amazing that the algorithms that we thought were say foundational and being a phase change say five years ago are being usurped and nobody talks about anymore Um, so there's there are techniques we use to handle that. The bottom line is, your patent attorney, and uh, when they're writing their case, your case, you can't just name the algorithm, right? Like you can't just say, "Oh, this is a deep neural net." Like you have to go beyond that and describe what's happening under the hood, because often, while the algorithms evolve, kind of the primitives or the pieces that they're built from don't, and they're just being reconfigured. And so, if you can describe those and claim those, those sort of Primitives that they're building these systems from that often will carry forward into the next generation of algorithms. And so we're um, we're having some success with that approach um, and, and getting some patents out the door that say outlasting the uh, the flavor of the week type algorithm and carrying forward into into um, uh, newer approaches that that use the same primitive. Yeah, so it, it, but it is a it is a real problem um, in terms of timing. Also, it's it's probably worth noting the time that an application sits in the patent office. It's not doing you much good while you're waiting for it to be examined. Um, it's not driving higher valuations as an issued patent for your company. The, the one thing I'd add to that is that there are some new programs at the patent office that let us get an application issued amazingly fast. When I started my career uh, 15 years ago, it took about three or four years from when you filed your application before a patent examiner picked it up. So, you're not getting a patent until four years after you file, and you might be on your like, your B or C round. Um, now, under a new program, we can pay a, a fee to the patent office, uh, usually around $2,000, and they'll pick it up in a few weeks or a month. Um, uh, our current record is 106 days from filing an application to an issued patent. So we can start engineering um, your patent issuances around your funding rounds. Um, or if you're looking to drive an acquisition in the near future and you want to have that as a talking point with corporate development folks to argue for higher valuations, your patent attorney can help you with that now uh, with some of these new tools in ways that
2: we, we weren't able to before. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And then in terms of, you know, because I know you, as we kind of started off the top of this, Discussion on is is doing diligence on the buyer side. How sophisticated do you find most buyers are when they're approaching these types of assets, or are they largely relying on someone such as yourself, and you know they're waiting on that real opinion? Mm-hmm. Um, you know,
3: it's it's really it's a mix. It's all over the place. Um, but frankly, some of it's kind of a black box. To us as well like in terms of what corporate development folks are 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 thinking or, or vcs are thinking like my my intuition is that they often just have a matrix and they need to find a company to fill a box in that matrix and uh the the founders who had the intuition to to sort of build that feedstock for the for the industry a few years earlier are the ones that win but I would say it really spans the it runs the whole gamut. Like some of these folks they have in house technical staff that are capable of evaluating it. Some of them go to consultants and some of them kinda of just they know if they put good stuff into this black box, they get good stuff out and they wanna own that black box without really understanding what's in it. The the whole process by which these companies are evaluated I think is I think it's something that the founders need to know more about to, to really sort of engineer the story of their company, to tune it for the process and I, I, I would be really curious from your perspective, like what's driving valuation in these deals? Like like how, what are you seeing when, when folks are figuring out like, what should I pay for this company? And do I evaluate it like a services
2: company or like a, like a SaaS company? Yeah. The valuation perspective is is probably one of the hardest answers to give. And the way we approach that conversation is, is we go down a, a couple of paths. One you know, at the end of the day, the financial speak to what kind of business this is. So you can dig in pretty hard on the revenue line item and see, all right, does it, is there volatility there? Is it consistent? Is it consistently rising? Um, because that's going to kind of talk to the recurring revenue model and, and how you engage with your clients. And then you're going to look at gross margins and say, all right, are they traditional software type gross margins? Is it 70, 80% plus? And are they really leveraging a well built out ability to scale cloud solution? Um, not, not an on-premise solution, but but a cloud solution that' that's scalable. <clears throat> rather than a, hey, this is heavily services. So you know it's it's going to blend that, that software margin. while, yes, you probably are selling some, some licensing and but it's it's gonna get blended down by the people that are are working on either highly customizable or or integration work, you know, is, is gonna speak to a little bit less ability to scale that platform. So you want that single code source that's easy to, to put in, not a lot of hands to, to get involved in uh, making sure it works right. So that's a big, big telling sign. And then you're gonna dig into kind of the cash flows. So you know, those those are a lot of you know things on the business side of stuff, uh, which is going to help drive obviously the better all those metrics, the more visibility, the client adoption, um, having large enterprise accounts using that technology are all important. Things. So, so those are all kind of ideal situation. And then the other really important thing that we see a lot from the financial sponsors to say, all right, is this real or not? Is looking at the revenue growth. And for them, I think a lot of them, if you're sub 10 in revenue, a lot of them want to see 50% plus continuous year-over-year growth. Because them, that's going to help the cash flow story. It's going to help speak to the adaptability in the market and all that sort of good stuff. And then you've got like this big intangible of all right, those are my financials, but how does this buyer value my asset, or what I've built? And that's the big unknown. That's that's the hardest piece to really define. Um, other than that, yeah, we can point to software multiples being in the mid single digits, you know, times revenue. Um, you know, depending on the scale of, of the business, and it can definitely scoot higher. And then it's, all right, the value in the eye of the beholder of what this can do to your existing platform and your existing clients and how this can expand. And that's a, that's a conversation where it's like, okay, there's there's been approaches where people take, you know dollars per data scientist or PhDs and try and back into math that way. There's, there's obviously the big cross-sell type of math that can be done um, when it gets pro formaed out through, through a buyer's P&L and, and what that looks like. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a hard question. I mean, I think in general, um, you, you see multiples for, for the software business trading in the mid to high single digits of uh, times revenue and, and definitely scooting higher. Um, and, and that's for companies doing over probably over 10. That's kind of like the tipping point. Uh, a good gating metric is, is the, all right, are we north of 10 million of revenue? We're going to step up into a bigger echelon because that implies greater market adoption. It's a scalable, uh, infrastructure and, and we're cash flow positive, all those nice things of a mature business. So it, there's two types of things. It's, it's hard to kind of get. Um, which, you know, it definitely gets done on the venture side of, hey, there's this vision and there's this, um, you know, unicorn-type valuation out there. Definitely gets done, but say a majority of the ones you, you know, when you don't hear about the headlines are definitely coming back down into reality of those metrics. And that's how I think a lot of the, a lot of these, uh, you know, corp dev and, and a lot of the, you know, the corporate development and, and a lot of the uh, M&A discussions are being had in, in that environment. So, you know, definitely not to say, hey, it's not out there, but it's it's an argument that needs to be made strategically. And do, do those sort of strategic um, valuation
3: mechanisms in contrast to the more formulaic ones, are they playing a bigger role in AI companies than you're seeing in, say, other other types of, of software-focused companies, or is it is it kind of consistent across the board and typical of what you'd see?
2: in the broader industry. I think it's pretty consistent. To go back to the point on the rapid evolution of the space, that's an important one because so we, we did a deal, um, I think it was two years ago now. We sold Next IT, which was a conversational AI chatbot platform. So they had big financial institutions using their platform. They had pasta, travel and entertainment market. So a lot of airlines use their solution. And it was they had long-standing patents, like back in the, I think, early 2000s, of neural networks and conversational AI and how you know you don't get caught down the rabbit hole, but the conversations come back up and then go down another route, and they had all that sort of stuff. Now, what happened was over, you know, they, they were one of the first to pioneer that space, and they did a fantastic job of doing it. But at the same time, what happened was, you know, Microsoft started developing their AI. Salesforce had Einstein. IBM has Watson. They all started joining in on that conversational AI piece. And it, it made it hard decision for those types of firms to say, well, we've already invested internally. We're well along the way. I, I don't think this is the right path for us. Whereas we found a buyer in verant who was like, hey, we like this solution, we can leverage it across a lot of our organization and into our client base, and that's gonna be meaningful for us to own this. And so for you know, so it's, you gotta think about the buyer buckets. I think that's most important, you know, when you think about an advisor and what they can strategically think through for the clients of, hey, is it is it just that I'm software and we're just gonna go to software companies, or are they intelligent enough to say, hey, This is how the space works. These are the options for your buyer universe. This is how we think about the different buckets. And this is how we're going to present the opportunity to the different buckets. I think that's the conversation that needs to be had across, you know, whether it's a software or something that's a little bit more out of the box that would still value it. Now, you know, it it may not be like this unicorn type thing, or it could be, but it's it's at least a conversation that needs to be had amongst. You know a, a, a broader universe so it's it's definitely an interesting interesting conversation and and, and to that point is you know the, the speed at which you know you have something valuable and wanting to go market that in an acquisition or a capital raise or whatever I'd say it's more imperative to to be timely now than, than it's ever been of because a lot of dollars are being spent figuring this space out so i think to your point earlier of hey having a good patent attorney having somebody who knows the channel and somebody that can guide you through that quickly and get that secure and push out and market it um on a on a pretty rapid basis is is pretty important these days uh, I'm
3: a little bit long but I'm really curiously, like, when should when should a company start talking with with Someone with some expertise in this space, like, because oh, like is, is this something that it's easier for you if they if they show up a few years in advance, or when do they start that conversation? Because it sounds like there's an opportunity to kind of engineer the story of your company with an eye towards like a liquidity event and it being well received. In, in yeah, that, in that environment,
2: yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think it's it's always a good idea to have relationships and have that continual. I guess, sounding board to, to say, hey, where are things at? Have somebody that's knowledgeable in the market that you can speak to um, and, and just build that relationship. I hope there's others out there that take the approach we do in that, hey, we're not transaction mercenaries. We're not going to just fly in whenever you want to do a deal, but we'll help you think about those things. And it's, it's good to engage on those conversations as early as possible. Um, it's 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 not too early to think about those things even if a transaction is you know, 36 months out or whatever it may be. It, it's helping to try and build that value and making smart business decisions so that when that time does come, you're well prepared and you're able to, to go down the path rather than having to pull the trigger right away, make a decision on who to hire, try and run a process and, and go as quick as you can. Um, I think the ability to just reach out, develop relationships, um, have those connections You know, as soon as you, you start doing it and have that advice so you know what the best path is to take. Never never your way to start that. John, this
3: has been fascinating for me. I, um, a lot of what I do is trying to engineer tools for folks like you to argue for a high valuation because frankly, uh, most of my emerging company clients, they're not going to sue somebody on their patent. They're going to the primary way they're going to benefit from them is um, someone like you arguing for a high valuation and a in a liquidity event or a funding round. It's extremely valuable for for me to hear your insights on it. So I really appreciate
2: you um, inviting me on to to talk with you about this. Yeah, I appreciate your time too. I mean, it's one of the big big pieces of this is and questions we get asked frequently is Hey, what's the legal risk What's the legal side of this patent? Is it is it valuable and how do we go through this process? What do we need to do? And, um, that's, that's a, it's, it's a front of a lot of folks' minds. Um, so it's, it's been great to connect. I definitely appreciate the time and, uh, we, we look forward to seeing some more deals soon.
1: Thank you both for your time. Um, I know we've talked through a lot today, so if you have any follow-up questions, uh, there will be contact information for Josh and John, on the Seven Mile website, where you can find this episode of the podcast, um, so that you're welcome to reach out to them with any follow up questions. If you take anything away from today, I think what you've probably realized is that it takes a village. Um, so start early with that planning process and be sure that you're putting the right people in place that can help you strategically think through some of these decisions. Um, and game plan rather than having to be reactive on the back end. So Pillsbury and Seven Mile are definitely here. And we look forward to hearing some questions that come out of this. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number seven, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business.